his true identity was kind of obscured to those even close to him is really incredible. He's there as the sinless son of God and his family and extended family is not even recognizing that. And when you try to wrap your mind around that, it seems that one reason that the world did not know him initially is that it it just simply was not the will of God for that to take place during his early years. The scripture does not focus our attention on his, on the early years of Jesus. And we know from texts that are familiar to us at Christmas that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We know that Joseph and Mary fled with him into Egypt when they heard that Herod was attempting to kill him. We know that when he was still young, they returned from Egypt and didn't settle in Judea, but they settled in Nazareth of Galilee and raised him there. But from that point on, until he was 30 years old, we only have one reference to Jesus, and it was when he was how old? It was when he was 12. And at that point, we read that he was growing in physical stature like other boys, that he displayed exceptional character and wisdom, and we know that his parents are making annual trips to Jerusalem. And on one particular trip, he was engaged in discussion with some religious scholars in Jerusalem, and then he returned with his parents and continued to grow. That's all we have about 30 years of his life. There does seem to be a witness in that, that Jesus did live the life of a man so completely that no one doubted his manhood. I mean, again, I'm, I'm talking about his brothers and sisters would not have doubted his manhood. <clears throat> They're doubting, if anything, his what? They're skeptical about his, about his deity. His second cousin is not doubting, is this a man? He's recognizing that. He just doesn't know that that is the Son of God. All of that also seems to be a witness, though, that God does not want us to dwell on the days of his manhood, but God wanted the the public presentation of his deity to be the thing that really captures our attention. He wanted the last three and a half years and the specific work that he had come to do to make an atonement for sin. He wanted that to be the focus. And I think that's helpful for us even now during Christmas. He wants our focus not to be primarily on infant Jesus or the boy Jesus. He wants our focus to be on the fact that that child was born the king. That that child is none other than the son of God. That child is none other than the savior of the world. And, and the witness of the breadth of the scripture is that he wants us to consider how did men respond to him when the fullness of his person was known. We all like babies, right? We, uh, I mean, we like babies at every level. We like baby boys and baby girls. We like baby puppies and baby kittens and baby nearly everything. But so many of those babies grow up and they, they're not so lovable and we don't care for them as much and, and, and you know, our attention can be distracted. And it's very easy for us to just get caught up even at Christmas season 
in the whole baby story. And it's right, and the Bible points to it, but it's so little in comparison to his true identity and what he came to do. And how do people respond not to the touching sentimental story of a baby, but how do people respond to the presentation of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Christ, the Son of God? How do people respond to that? And John highlights a great deal of that. And again, this is kind of introduction to the rest of the book. But we learn, first of all, in verse 11 of men rejecting him. Notice in verse 11, he came unto his own, but his own, what? His own received him not. And the first reference to his own, and the, and the next two observations I'm going to make about the text, even if you didn't circle the world in verse 10 three times and <clears throat> highlight that, you really do need to note this in verse 11. The first reference to his own, he came to his own, that is a neuter ending in the Greek language. You don't need to know that exactly, but it communicates something like his own things. The second reference to his own in verse 11 is masculine in the Greek, and that communicates something more specific like his own people. And that's what we need to get. We need to get, he came to his own things, but his own people didn't receive him. Now, what are we supposed to think of when we read he came to, I'm going to say it this way, he came to his own things. What are the Lord's things? And, I mean, you could start very broad because the earth is the Lord's, right? And the fullness thereof. So, you could talk about the whole earth being his. But the scripture actually highlights some things that are uniquely his own. You don't need to turn to any of these because I need to go quickly. But in Deuteronomy eleven twelve, it refers to the land of Canaan as the land which the Lord thy God careth for. So you could talk about the whole earth, but honestly, you could start to zero in on one particular piece of real estate, if you will, over there in the Middle East. But once you start to zero in there, there is a particular city. That is the focus of his attention. Psalm 48 and verse 2 says, Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north. Now listen to this. The city of the what? The city of the great king. So the whole earth, but now there is this strip of land, Israel, and within that there's a particular city, Jerusalem. And as you really start to zero in, there's a particular structure in that city that he claims as his own. 1 Kings 9 and verse 3, The Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I have hallowed or sanctified this house. He's talking to Solomon after Solomon's prayed. I have hallowed, sanctified this house which thou hast built to put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. So you could go right down to that temple. And even more specific within that house, think about this. And that whole temple uh, precinct and compound. Isaiah 56 and verse 7 says, 
Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Thy burnt offerings, thy sacrifices shall be accepted upon my altar. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record an occasion where Jesus entered into Jerusalem and specifically went right up into the temple. And remember, he was casting out money changers and the merchants, and he was telling everyone that that house was whose house? Hey, that house was his house, and they didn't have, it was a house of prayer, and they didn't have the right to turn it into a house of merchandising and making money. I want to have you turn forward to John 19, still in this book, in verse number 27, just to look at this one reference. There's a really interesting usage of, of the term his own that has this same neuter ending that I was talking about in, in the Greek. John 19 and verse 27. This is when Jesus is on the cross and he says to the disciple, which is referring to John, he said, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his, his own, and we have his own home here. So, like this term, could be used to describe John taking Mary to his own home. It really is not a stretch at all for us to, to talk about Jesus coming. What, what would you say? Some of you, uh, on Wednesday nights, we take uh, birthdays and recognize birthdays. And, and, and sometimes we'll, well, how many of you are born and bred Southerners, right? And, and the upstate. And so some of you, this is home. This is as much home as it's going to get on this earth. But um, some of us are transplants, right? <clears throat> and if I said, hey, what's, what's your home? And you may say, you know, whatever region. Um, what's your hometown? Do you have a hometown? All right. We use that kind of terminology. And really, it's not a stretch to, talk, to talking about Jesus coming to his homeland and to his hometown and to his home himself, and even, think about this, even to his room. Okay, hopefully when you college students get back home, you know, a younger sibling hasn't taken over your room, right? <laughs> Sometimes they like to do that. You, you get to your homeland, your hometown, your house, and even your room in the house, and even your possessions within your room. That's what it's saying. Jesus came to his own. Uniquely, this was all his. And tragically, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse number 11, it tells us that when he came to his own things, his own people did what? His own people rejected him. Now think about that. The people he had redeemed from Egyptian bondage the people that he had entered into covenant with at Mount Sinai, the people that he brought back now at that time, I'm talking the first century, he had brought them back out of Babylonian exile. Those people did not receive him. And John's 
gospel records more specific accounts of men rejecting Jesus than any other gospel. And you can just think through some of them with me. In chapter 5, Jesus healed a man that had had an infirmity for 38 years. But because he did it on the Sabbath day, chapter 5, verse 16 says, they persecuted him and sought to slay him. Think about that. He heals a guy that's had an infirmity 38 years and they're going to kill him for it because he did it on the wrong day. In chapter 6, he fed over 5,000 men, along with women and children. And he fed them with five loaves and, and two fishes. But when he tried to turn their... And, and they initially wanted to make him a king. But when he tried to turn their attention away from the physical and the material and, and told them that they needed to believe on him because he was the bread of life, By the time that chapter is over, it says that nearly all went back and walked no more with him. In chapter 7, he taught at the Feast of Tabernacles. And and when men wondered how he could teach with such depth when he had never been to their seminaries of the day, he told them that his teaching was not his, but it was his father's that sent him. And for that, the Jewish Jewish religious leadership shot sought to shut him down eliminate him no more voice in john 8 and verse 12 he claimed that he was the light of the world and when he did the pharisees said liar liar unsubstantiated lies and when he confronted their sin and he spoke of the truth and he said that god was his witness his father was his witness they said among other choice statements that he had a demon And at the end of the chapter, they picked up stones to stone him. In chapter 10, he claimed that he was the door, the gate to the sheepfold, and that anyone that tried to lead the sheep apart from him was a thief and a robber, and he claimed that he was the good shepherd. Anyone who tried to claim that role was at best a hireling, and he claimed again to come from the Father and have the power to lay down his life and take it up. All of that in in John chapter 10. And again, they said, he's demon-possessed. They took up stones to stone him. When Jesus submitted to their arrest, the chief leadership brought him before Pilate, and and Pilate repeatedly said, he's done no crime. He's done nothing worthy of death. But they said, he's claimed to be God, and therefore he must die. And you probably, again, weren't making a list. I didn't tip you off to do that. but, But here's the reasons why people rejected him. He crossed their traditions. They wouldn't get their eyes off of the physical and material. He didn't come from the religious establishment. He claimed to be light and confronted their darkness. He claimed to be the exclusive source of eternal life. And above all else, all along the way, he claimed to be God. And we've just skimmed the surface of those accounts this, this morning. But, but for these reasons and others, when he came to his own things, his own people did not receive him. And in contrast, though, to the majority, verse 12 speaks of people who do receive him. Notice in verse 12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. There were some during his earthly ministry that did 
receive. And there are people who continue to do so today. When the multitudes went away and walked no more with him, the Lord actually said to the twelve, Are you going to go away? And Peter responded, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's nowhere else to go. You are all our hope. And there are people who continue to respond that way today. And when they receive him, it says he gave them power. And, and <clears throat> there is a Greek term for power that is dunamis. We kind of think of it as dynamite, the power of ability. But this term, there's another Greek term that is translated power. This term is that one. It's exousia. It's not the power of ability. It's the power of someone having authority, someone having the right to something. Now think about this. In this case, it is the one exousia. It is authority, the right. Believers, we do not have some kind of ability inside of ourselves to make ourselves fit with God. I I can't make myself part of God's family. But I do this. When I receive him, I receive the right and the privilege to be called the son of God. There's a great deal of interest in the children of famous people. And I was thinking about uh, my, my own dad and his untimely death. My dad got right with the Lord later in his life, and we had a wonderful last few years together, but at the age of 54, he was diagnosed with cancer, and five months later, he died at the age of 55. And he wasn't famous, but he'd lived a number of years in the same community, and and a number of folks, by the hundreds, really, they came to, to his funeral and the viewing, and and I was conscious of the fact that others had special relationships with my dad, even including one that would be called a stepson, and who's, he's a good man, a couple of, uh, of son-in-laws. But it was interesting, during that season, I was conscious of the fact that while there were many expressing thankfulness for what was commendable in dad, I was the only one that had the right to be called his son. And at that time, it was a special privilege. But I can tell you that the right of being called Thomas Lee Fuller Jr., named after my dad, doesn't hold a candle to the privilege that comes with the right to be called the Son of God. And that right is given to who? In verse 12. That right is given to those that receive him. And if you, wonder, if you wonder what it means to receive him, <clears throat> look down to the end of the verse. To those who do what? To those who believe on his name. Now we may get there and <clears throat> believe on his name. What does that mean? My name is what distinguishes you know, me from you. The Son of God <clears throat> took a name to distinguish himself. His name was loaded with particular significance. Do you remember what the angel told Joseph about Mary's baby? Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he what? 
for he shall save his people from their sins. Literally, call his name Jehovah saves. So think about what that emphasizes about him. His name, his name distinguishes him to be a savior from sin. So his name does not distinguish him to be a teacher of doctrine, though he did. An example of love, though he certainly was. Or, you know, a standard of morality. All of that is true about him. But his name says that the principal truth that you highlight about him is that he is a savior from sin. Now, how would you know if you did this? How would you know if you believed into, if you believed on his name? Well, if you believed in his name, you wouldn't be standing outside. You wouldn't be standing kind of aloof and distant from him. If you believed into him, there would be as if there was a pressing with a great desire and a sense of urgency to get into him. It would be like the kind of earnestness someone would have about getting into a boat like the ark if you really believed that it's that or the other option is to what? Drown in a flood. I mean, if you believe Noah out there preaching righteousness that a flood is coming, if you believe that, you had been earnest to get in the only source of salvation, that is the ark, and you'd press to get into it. Think about the kind of earnestness people have to get into some attraction they really want to see. And in particular, maybe to get the best seats. And so they press into with urgency. When people believe into the name of Jesus, they say things like, Thomas, my Lord, and my God. Or they say like even a Roman centurion, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Or they say things like the highly religious Saul of Tarsus who's come to grips with the fact that he was completely wrong. I mean, he's persecuting the followers of Jesus. But now he realized that Jesus is Jehovah God who's speaking to him out of the heavens. And he says, Lord, what will you have me to do? When people believe into him, they say like a thief on the other side of the cross, they say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's not a formula whereby somebody says the right words, you know, with the right person in the right place. But they just look to Jesus and they just commit themselves entirely to him. I can't stay aloof. I can't stay away. I'm taking Jesus as everything. He's my Lord and Savior. And the fruit of true believing is not only the right to be called the Son of God, but as we look at verse 13, it is also the birth of an entirely new life. Verse 13 speaks of those as uh, those that are the sons of God as being born 
And this is not just a, a declaration of a new status, but they, something has been born that is entirely new, which were <clears throat> born. That's not just you have a right. That's life, new life. And that doesn't come, verse 13, it doesn't come from blood of any kind. That doesn't come from sacrificial blood. That doesn't come from, as an inheritance, from, you know, a a religious upbringing. It doesn't come, continuing on in verse 13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. You can't change yourself. Give yourself new life. Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh. Look at the last phrase. Nor of the will of man. No parent, no preacher, no man of any kind will give you this new life. That new life comes from where? It comes from God alone. And brethren, in light of this text this morning, I just ask you two questions. One, do you have the right to be called the Son of God? Where are people today that want to say we're all children of God? We're all created by God, but we're not all the children of God. Jesus said to some people, you are of your father, the who? You're of your father, the devil. Do you have the right to be called the son of God, a child of God, a son or daughter of the king? Do you have that right? And secondly, do you have this life? The life that comes from believing into his name. It's interesting that First John makes a little comparison about this. He said, you can tell the children of God and the children of the devil. Because the true children of God live like their who? They live like their father. Because his life has been born into them. Do you have the right... And do you have the life because you have pressed into Jesus, believing in him with all that you are? Or have you resisted and stood aloof to his claims? Um, Harold really had it right, didn't he? (laughs) No, no, don't go away. You have my room. And really what we need to say, don't go away, Lord. You have my life. You have my heart. You take everything. Have you received or have you rejected the one who is light and life? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning?